Women of and in the church, doing this uh, series on the role of women in the church. And we have spent time talking first about uh, the context of women in the church. And the first context we looked at, 1 Corinthians 11, was submission. The idea reflected in the concept of head coverings, um, with that, that reflection being a tradition that Paul had taught in the church there. Uh, and that tradition of head coverings, which Paul would go on to say in that chapter, if, if um, any man seemed to be contentious, we have no such custom. No, not the churches of God. The idea there being that the operative element there is not the head covering itself, whether that head covering would be something on the hair or would be the long hair. Uh, the operative point is not the head covering itself, but rather what it is supposed to symbolize. And I was thinking about this more over these last couple of weeks. Um, one of the things that we have in our current age is kind of a rejection of tradition and even a rejection in some senses of symbolisms, um, that we have certain things that we do and we do them for a reason, and uh, or at least we did do them for a reason, and that reason may have had some practical purposes, but some of them may have simply been traditions, symbolic, and outward reflection of something inward. When we talk about why it is that we might dress up on a Sunday, we talk about an outward reflection of something inward. And so this was something that was done in the church. There is an outward reflection of something inward. And this is not a bad thing. These things are not bad things. Now, the danger becomes, and Paul addresses that danger, the idea that if we don't do the outward reflection, then we say, oh, you, if, if you do not reflect, the, reflect something outwardly, then it's not then you don't have it inwardly. Of course, that's a danger, and that's where we would get the, the dangers of elevating the tradition above the thing that the tradition is intended to symbolize. And that's where we get into the problems of what we might call legalism, where we are imposing upon people a standard of, of action uh, that we don't really care whether or not it's in their heart as long as it's something that they're doing. And, and of course, that's why in certain time periods we have... Um, swung away from certain traditions or outward manifestations. But what we do see here is that Paul commended them for the outward manifestation, for the outward thing that they were doing that was intended to be a reflection of the inward. But, of course, our focus was on the inward. So what we found there is that within the church setting, within uh, the husband-wife setting, within the male-female setting in the church as well, that there is... Headship idea, and that this headship idea is thus meant to be that the man submits to Christ and the woman submits to the man, and within the church, that headship is intended to be reflected so that women have a posture of submission within the body. And so we talked about that. Then we talked about the idea of shamefacedness last week. And remember, we uh, went to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, that women would uh, be adorned in shamefacedness with sobriety. And we talked about this idea of in like manner also. And we thought through the, the idea that um, men were supposed to pray in a certain way, or the way we, we primarily concluded it is men pray everywhere without uh, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And we said basically instead of lifting up hands unto wrath or disputing, lift up hands to pray. And we thought the way that this could be is directing the, the, the manner of prayers, that prayers are not in some sort of um, uh, overflow, uh, a, a performative overflow, but rather that they're supposed to be sincere. But the reason why we said, well, that's probably not the case is because we, si we simply don't see the Bible use the Greek words here in that way in the New Testament. So we said most likely the idea here is that men were not supposed to be engaged in 
wrath and the word doubting there is disputing or, or arguing one among another. And instead, instead of lifting up your hands unto those ends, lift up your hands to pray together. And then this was uh, um, uh, contrasted or, or really compared to in like manner to the way in which women adorn themselves. So instead of adorning yourself to compare yourselves among one another or to judge one another or to elevate yourself above another, be uh, adorned in shamefacedness with sobriety. The idea being there, the shamefacedness idea is the idea that you are coming not to draw attention to yourself, but rather to draw attention to, well, not, not to draw attention to your physical, but rather as professes women or as, as adorns women professing godliness with good works. And if you come adorned to draw attention to your physical, the implication there is that you are by default taking away from your virtues. And so that was the idea with shamefacedness. And those are the two concepts that we've talked through so far. This week we begin on silence. Before I get into silence, this is the third word that we see contextually uh, as it relates to women. Uh, were there any thoughts on these first two things that maybe were bouncing through your mind over the last few weeks um, that we should uh, address before moving on? Okay. Uh, then let's talk about silence. Uh, this comes down to 1 Corinthians 14. And actually, we're going to uh, spend uh, quite a bit of time here. It'll probably take more than just this week as we work through uh, the ideas here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Um, we see two particular passages that, that, that address this idea of silence. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, and then 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. As a matter of fact, let me go there first, to 1 Timothy 2, and I'll show you that one. We, we were, of course, there, um, but we'll look at that, and then um, we'll, we'll go to 1 Corinthians 14 to see what it's saying there, and then we'll bring that back into 1, Corinthians, or 1 Timothy 2. So this is where we were last week. Like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with bright hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. And then he says, let the women learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. So here, this one's not as controversial because we see the contrast. Let a woman be silent. Don't teach or usurp authority, but be in silence. So do you see the contrast here that this contrast is actually narrowing the scope of what Paul is saying? He's not saying women are not allowed to open their mouths as soon as they enter into the church or the assembly. But in this contrast, do not teach or usurp authority of man, but be in silence. We see the contrast that actually delineates what this silence means. However, we don't exactly see the same type idea um, as clearly in 1 Corinthians 14. And um, we'll specifically look at verses 34 and 35, and then we're actually going to go back to verse 1. But it says this in, in um, 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34 and 35. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak. But they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will earn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. Now, this one does not bring that contrast to bear, 
that 1 Timothy 2 does. 1 Timothy 2, it's easy enough for us to say, okay, let the women learn in silence. I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority of a man, but to be in silence. Obviously, the silence there is to not to not teach or to usurp authority over the man. That's the silence. Makes perfect sense. But this one doesn't have that same contrast. So what, what do we do with this is the question. How do we address this idea of, of the women being in silence? Does this one give us the insight necessary to then interpret 1 Timothy 2 to say, well, no, there's no qualification here. Simply the idea that they need to be silent. It is not permitted unto them to speak, but must be under obedience, therefore silent. And then if they would learn anything, if they would ask a question, if they would say anything, let them do it at home because it's a shame for a woman to speak in the church. And this is where we need to go into our context here. Context is so important when you're studying. Uh, you cannot just take a two-verse snippet in 1 Corinthians 14, verses, 30, I like the, uh, verses 34 and 35, and then say, well, this unequivocally means women can't speak simply because these two verses say so. Well, maybe, but under what context? Are we operating here? We could, we could have said the same thing in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul commends them for keeping the traditions. He tells them that women should wear head coverings. And if we didn't decide to keep on reading in the context, we never would have gotten to, but if any man have, uh, if, if there, if any man have contention, we have no such, no such custom. Even the churches of God. We don't get to that point in the text and we're missing vital context. So, 1 Corinthians... Chapter 14. First <coughs> um, Corinthians 14 is in the spiritual gifts portion of First Corinthians. I preached uh, a week ago, Sunday night, on First Corinthians 13. And so I gave you a little bit of a summary in that, in that message of First Corinthians 12. First Corinthians 12, summarizing spiritual gifts, and then specifically saying that, that there are these gifts, these manifestations that are more overt. Paul says, can all prophesy, can all speak in tongues, can all heal? He said, covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. And then he said, the more excellent way, regardless of a spiritual gift that you might be manifesting, tongues or knowledge or prophecy, the more excellent way is love. And so we covet, we, 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 we pursue the more excellent way. Because when we were a child, we thought as a child, we understood as a child, we spake as a child, but when we become a man, we put away childish things. And so we elevate ourselves above just the petty bickering about whose spiritual gift is better, and we rest instead upon the maturity that is doing all things in love. However, then he comes back in chapter 14 to the spiritual gifts. So he says, follow after charity, right, remember, right at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, and now abideth these three, faith, hope, charity, but the greatest of these is charity. Then he says, follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts. So remember, 1 Corinthians 12, the very end, he says, covet earnestly the best gifts. Now he says, okay, follow after charity, desire spiritual gifts, but notice this, but rather that ye may prophesy. This is him answering the question, what is the best gift? What is the, the, the gift that you should covet after? And it's not tongues. It's not healing. It's prophecy. Now, what is Prophecy. This is where Paul begins to clarify. For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, 
but unto God, for no man understandeth him. Howbeit in the spirit he speaketh mysteries. So, so this is the idea of a man speaking in some tongue that is unknown. Um, whether this is uh, the, what we see in the book of Acts, um, where people are speaking and they're hearing it in their own language, that, that's the context that we see there. Or whether it's something else. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. So we don't exactly know what, what speaking with the tongue of an angel would mean. But either way, what he says here is this. That a man speaking in an unknown tongue is not speaking to men, but unto God. Because no man can understand him. So if a person gets up in the church and he starts speaking in tongues, he's not doing anyone in the church any good. And Paul says this is a really big deal. This is very important. He says, but he that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. So now we have this idea of what prophecy is. Prophecy is a speaking in, a, in, 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 in the native tongue that which brings edification, exhortation, and comfort. So we're not talking about telling the future here directly. And we actually see this in the Old Testament as well, that if we consider the concept of prophecy in the Old Testament, a very minimal portion of prophecy in the Old Testament is actually telling the future. Most of prophecy in the Old Testament is Thus saith the Lord. Obey. Get in line. Stop doing what you're doing. That's most of prophecy. And then they say, and if you do not obey, this will happen. Or in order to show you that this is true, I'm going to do this thing. Or I'm going to tell you that this is going to happen so that when it comes to pass, you will know that the Lord spoke it. So the, the, the actual foretelling of the future the prophetic element of foretelling was intended as a means by which to validate the prophetic message of foretelling. Obey, repent, believe. Most of prophecy was that. And so we see here that this is not inconsistent. That Paul is saying, prophesy, that being edify the believers. He says, he that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifieth himself, but he that prophesieth edifieth the church. He said, I would that ye all spake in tongues, with tongues, but rather, he says, that ye prophesied. That's the best gift. For greater is he that prophesieth than he that speaketh with, with tongues, except he interpret that the church may receive edifying. Because what are the spiritual gifts there to do? The, uh, is it Romans 12 that these things are given that it may profit with all, Right? The spiritual gifts are given. Each one of you, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, has been given a gift in the Spirit so that you might profit the body of Christ. You cannot exercise that gift properly outside of the profiting of the body of Christ. Now, what does that mean? Well, the person that has the gift of evangelism is going out winning the lost, bringing them to the church. That's, that's benefiting the church. The person that has the gift of teaching is in here teaching the church. The person that has the gift of faith is exhorting those others in the church unto faith. The person who has the gift of mercy is the one who is out there being the hands of the church, reaching out to others, meeting needs, doing it in Jesus' name, doing it in the name of, uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ and as a representative of the body here. Those who have the gift of giving both benefit the church by giving to the church as well as benefit in the name of the church to others. But it's all that we might profit with all. 
Because we all have different gifts. We all have different abilities. And if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, God has given you one, not your natural talents, but a spiritual gift specifically so that you can integrate yourself into the body of Christ and be a part of what the, what the body is doing. In the body analogy, when we accept Christ as our Savior, He makes us some body part. Maybe that's a knee, maybe that's an elbow, maybe that's a tooth, maybe that's an eye, maybe that's an ear, maybe that's a mouth. He has made us something so that we can attach ourselves to the body and be for the body that part that the body needs. All right? Questions on these first five verses? Or thoughts, of course. All right, verses 6 through 12. This is Paul's argument regarding the necessity of order, of clarity, and of distinction in the exercising of spiritual gifts and particularly teaching. He says, now, brethren, if I come unto you speaking with tongues, so we come back to this idea of tongues because tongues was the thing in Corinth. For whatever reason, they really liked their, their speaking in tongues. He said, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what shall I profit you except I shall speak to you either by revelation or by knowledge or by prophesying or by doctrine? He says, if I just come with tongues, you're not going to get anything from me. You'll only get something from me if I also come with revelation, knowledge, prophesying, doctrine, with things that are going to tell you something that you can actually understand. And even things without life-giving sound, whether pipe or harp, except they give a distinction in the sounds, how shall it be known what is piped or harped? That didn't do anyone any good. It didn't bless anyone. It didn't calm anyone didn't connect to anything but dissonance. But if somebody gets up here who knows how to play this instrument and starts putting those notes together in a manner that, that actually has distinction in the sounds, then there is communication, and that communication can minister unto you. Right? For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? If, you, if the trumpet does not make the sound that people have, have been told to listen for, then how can you know what to do? I ran into this yesterday for the first time. I was sitting in my office. I'd just gotten done with a two-hour tech support call with my dad and grandfather. And all of a sudden, I heard a beep. And I had no idea what that beep was. Just a beep. And it sounded from my left side. So I'm looking around. I'm saying, my computer doesn't have one of those little old school speakers in it. So it's not my computer. And I'm listening. And as I'm turning my head to listen, the sound is not getting any farther from me. And I realize it's this piece of plastic in me that's beeping. Now... One of the things that I had meant to do, but never did do, and I don't know why they don't do it for me, is I, I meant to last several appointments to say, hey, could you just set this thing off for me so I know what it sounds like when it goes off? But I'm sitting here saying, what is that thing? And then the question becomes, okay, what does that mean? So I got to spend some time in the emergency room yesterday. Uh, but it turns out that nothing's wrong. Um, but... I'm there reading the manual, trying to see again what is it, because I thought it meant something. It turns out that the thing I thought the beep meant is not at all what the beep meant. And then I spent a bunch of time on the phone today trying to clarify what the beeps meant. And it took me a long time even talking to someone to figure out what the beeps meant. If the beeps don't give 
If, if, if the beeps aren't clear, and if there's not a clear manual telling me what the beeps are, then it doesn't do me a whole lot of good when it starts beeping. All it does is send my blood pressure through the roof and make me sit in the emergency room for a couple hours. If there's not a clarity in sound, it doesn't do anyone any good, right? So if I'm speaking in tongues, but nobody can understand me, and there's no distinction in sound, then nobody's edified. So likewise, except ye utter by the tongue words easy to be understood, how shall it be known what is spoken? For ye shall speak into the air. And this is not, by the way, this is, this is entirely applicable not just to speaking in another language, but if I were to get up here, and I know sometimes I use words that some people don't understand, uh, and, and that's something that over time I've, 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 I've worked on. Early on it was worse. But if I get up here and I say a bunch of things that nobody understands because I'm, I'm, I'm speaking on this level of, of uh, just, you know, theology words that, that nobody apart from people who read theology books would understand, I'm not doing anyone any good. I'm only doing you good if, I, if you can understand what I'm saying. I had that conversation too. I was trying to talk to this nurse about my, my ICD and I, I, I was asking her one question. I just needed the answer to one question and she was answering every question but that one. And I just was asking it again and again. And, and at the end of that conversation, I went up to my wife and I said, you know, I'm supposed to be a communicator for a living. Like, that's my living. Am I that bad at it? And I thought, I need to ask my people. Like, do I stand up here and just say a bunch of stuff? You know, there's two reasons why people don't have questions, right? Either I made it so clear that nobody has any questions or it's so unclear nobody even knows where to go with it. And now I'm starting to wonder... If the reason why nobody has any questions is the latter, not the former. Because she just could not. It's like, I I feel like I'm speaking English. And she doesn't even have an accent, so I think she understands English. But we're not communicating here. If words are not easy to be understood, how shall it be known what is spoken? If I'm just speaking into the air, we might as well all go home. Because it's not doing you any good just to sit here to check off your list that you heard pastor say words. Right? There are, it may be, Paul says, so many kinds of voices in the world and none of them is without signification. Therefore, if I know not the meaning of the voice, I shall be unto him that speaketh a barbarian and he that speaketh shall be a barbarian unto me. Even so ye, for as much as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. Great, I hope that you're zealous after spiritual gifts, Paul says, but seek after them for one reason and one reason only, to bless the body of Christ. If you're not blessing the body of Christ, you're not doing anyone any good. If I'm just up here exercising my spiritual gift to impress the body of Christ, we might as well go home. If I'm exercising my spiritual gift to elevate myself over over the body of Christ, we might as well go home. If I'm exercising my spiritual gift for any other reason than to bless the body of Christ then I'm not really doing it for the right reason. And of course, what we find here is Paul is specifically keyed in on this idea of speaking in tongues. Take note of that because that's going to be pretty important. Questions, thoughts, concerns? (laughs) Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Sam. Yeah, as as I got nothing, I was like, hmm, did they... (laughs) 
Good feedback. Good feedback. I like it. Yes, ma'am. I, I, I think you might have been right. Uh, eventually, I got to something like an answer, but the conclusion of that conversation is I need to make an appointment with my doctor. Um, because, you know, one of the things that I've learned over the years, my, my mom's a nurse, both my sisters are nurses, and one of the things that you learn is that a nurse could have been a C-minus student or an A-plus student. They both got the same piece of paper, right? And, uh, but usually if a person is in the specialty fields as a doctor, they're pretty sharp. So uh, I'll, go, I'll go talk to my, my cardiologist at some point, and we'll, uh, we'll get the questions answered that I need to get answered. Um, but I think you're right. Uh, I think you're right, Annie. Um, verses 13 through 17, Paul then argues regarding the necessity of understanding unto edification. He says, Wherefore, let him that speaketh in an unknown tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful. So this is an interesting idea. And there's a lot that we could dig into here as far as what is, what, what was this tongues thing? And uh, some people would say, well, go down the street and find out. But I don't think anyone is exercising it today in a manner that would give us any biblical insight, to be quite honest. But what we see here is Paul says, if I speak in an unknown tongue, if you are going to speak in an unknown tongue, he says, pray that you can interpret. Because the only way that an unknown, speaking in an unknown tongue is going to have any value is if there's someone there to tell the body what is being said. In the same way that when Miss Andrea comes and she's speaking in Creole and she says whatever she says, if Dee's not there to tell us what she's saying, it's wonderful that we can allow her to overflow whatever's on her heart, but nobody has any idea. Happy, sad, praise, prayer request. We don't know unless there's someone there to interpret, right? He says, but then he says, for if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful. So this is the idea, and I've actually talked to people like this before. They say, well, I don't speak in tongues in... I don't, I don't speak in tongues in, uh, in public, but I'll, I'll pray. I'll speak in tongues, you know, in, in private. Okay, um, fine. Your spirit is praying, but your understanding is unfruitful. And um, he says, what is it then? I will pray, I mean, to whatever degree that's actually even valid, right? What, what is it then? I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. Else, when thou shalt bless the, with the Spirit, how shall he that occupieth the room of the unlearned say amen at thy giving of thanks, seeing he understandeth not what thou sayest? For thou verily givest thanks well, but the other is not edified. So he has this idea here. Well, okay, so I could pray, I could pray in an unknown tongue and thus pray in the Spirit, but my understanding is not edified. Or I could pray in the Spirit in a known tongue, and thus not only have I prayed in the spirit, but my, my, my understanding has been edified. Have you ever been doing that where you've been praying and it's like your prayers are edifying you? I've, I, that happens to me sometimes when I'm teaching or when I'm preaching. As I'm teaching or preaching, like something finally clicks for the first time. Oh yeah, that's, and it edifies me because I'm, I'm, I'm speaking in a manner of clarity and there can be edification. 
In the same way, he says, I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the understanding also. I'll sing in a known tongue so that there can be spirit and understanding. And then he says, and what about blessing? You bless someone in an unknown tongue. How shall he that occupieth the room of the unlearned say amen at thy giving of thanks? If a person does not understand, if there's no interpreter, how can they, how can they be blessed by your blessing? How can they hear your blessing and be edified by that? I love song and testimony night. It's wonderful to sing, but you know, the last, especially the last one, boy, there are some great testimonies. What a fantastic thing it is to hear how other people... Not, um, it's not just hearing what other people are thankful for. The thing that, that really strikes me when there's a song and a testimony night or just when there's testimonies given, it's not even just when testimonies are given, when someone calls or writes or whatever it might be, is I sit there and I hear that and I say, wow, I hadn't even thought of being thankful for that. You gain a perspective from hearing other people's thankfulness. Whether that's, thank God I'm still alive, and you say, wow, I've never even been in a life or death situation. I should be, th- I should be thankful. Or, oh, so-and-so is thankful for, for another person and just for a nuance or a little something they did or just because of a phone call. Who could I call this week? Who might the Lord want me to call this week to bless in the same way they were blessed by a phone call? And all that edification happens by hearing blessings. There's also a real blessing. One of the things that I've asked before is, you know, who wants to share their testimony of, of coming to Christ? That's not just to share but it's because when we hear how other people came to Christ, there's edification there. You learn perspective. Oh, wow, that's a really interesting testimony. I, that's very different from my experience. And you learn that people have different experiences so that we don't put ourselves in a box of the only way you can accept Christ is the way I experienced accepting Christ. Right? All of those things. That's all edification. And, and uh, he says, you know, if thou give us thanks, well, but the other is not edified. You're, you're not maximizing the potential of giving a thanks if you're doing it in an unknown tongue. You're not maximizing your prayers. You're not maximizing prophecies. You're not maximizing your singing if it's done in an unknown tongue because there might be spirit, but there's no understanding. Anything on that? Questions? All right, so we're still very focused here on speaking. Verses 18 through 21, Paul's personal testimony regarding the use of tongues. He says, I thank my God I speak with tongues more than ye all. So Paul is able to speak from, because you know how Corinth is, right? In, 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 in 2 Corinthians, he has to spend a bunch of time um, proving his ministry and kind of uh, justifying himself. And, um, and we, we see at the beginning of the, the of 1 Corinthians, the controversy, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. So there would probably be, in a sense, a contingency of the church that didn't even see Paul as kind of the, the head guy as it relates to their honor or their esteem. They'd say, well, sure, Paul says that, but what does Apollos say? What does Peter say? Um, because he's the guy I follow. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. And um, so, but Paul says, well, I thank God in this, that in this, nobody can say, I don't have the authority to speak on this because I speak in tongues more than anyone else. And because of that, my authority is irrefutable on this. 
And it's a real shame that, uh, that Paul would have had to do that, right? That he couldn't just appeal to his apostolic authority, but he had to appeal to the fact that he spoke in tongues more than all. But that, that's because this is a carnal group of believers and they're acting carnally. It's kind of, the, and, and, and even then it's very human, right? Um, I'll sit across from people in the jail and I'll give them what they need to hear. And if they find out that I've never been in jail before, they may shut their ears off and say, well, you can't understand. Well, no, I understand pretty well. After 10 years of working with people in the jail, I understand pretty well. I didn't have to do drugs to understand. And yet some people will say, no, you have no credibility unless you went through it too, right? And that, that would be kind of the carnal idea that Paul was fighting against here when he says, I thank my God, or I thank my God I speak in tongues more than y'all. He says, yet in the church, I had rather speak five words with my understanding, that would be in a known tongue, than by my vo- that by my voice I might teach others also, than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. So that I'd rather just say five words in, in the tongue that people understand than 10,000 in a tongue that they don't. Brethren, be not children in understanding, howbeit in malice be ye children, but in understanding be men. This harkens back to 1 Corinthians 13. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child. When I became a man... I put away childish things. This is what he's calling them to do here. Quit with your, quit being a child and just pursuing the glamour, the the tongues because it's novel and interesting and elevating and uh, and uh, it it makes you feel spiritual. Stop with with that. That's that's childish. Yep, speaking in your native tongue isn't glamorous. It's not glitzy. It's not going to make people look at you in awe and wonder. But you know what? It does a better job at what you're supposed to be doing in the church. So just do that. If you want to be a child in something, be a child in malice. Right? Be a child in bickering. Be a child in arguing. Be a child in division. Be, be, be children in those ways, uh, in, 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 in your, your capacity to, to do those carnal things. But, you know, as it relates to the things of, of God... Be men. Be grown-ups. Pursue that which is best, not that which is most glamorous, not that which is most uh, interesting. Questions, thoughts on that? Joel. Uh, Bill. We'll start with Bill. Yep. Right.
Right. Right. Yeah. So, so uh, we we think of that idea um, of that's the parable in Luke of the Pharisee and then this this publican who was a sinner. And the Pharisee says, "I thank you that I'm not as this publican is, but that I do all of these things." And he was very eloquent, and he was very um, uh, moral. And he was very conscientious of the law, and yet his heart was so far from God, he was lifted up in pride. And then you have this man who is on his knees, beating his chest, saying, uh, 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 not even lifting his head, unworthy, he felt, to lift his head even unto God. And saying, God, simply be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's the man that walked away justified. Why? Because his heart was there. And, and, and it's a similar idea. Yeah, um, God forbid that church becomes performative, right? Don't come to play a part. You might even, as you come to play a part, fool everybody. We might be well impressed and it's all well and good for you, but you know what? You didn't do any good for yourself or for God. And you're not actually doing any good for the church either if you're just playing a part because there's no spirit there, right? Um, and so this idea, so Paul, and, and in this case, Paul is not contrasting wicked with good. In this case, just that which is simple with that which is mature. Joel, did you have something? Go ahead. Yeah, and healing. Sure. So the question is, what? Uh, so, so 
Really broadening out, broadening out to where, where does the church stand as it relates to the nature of tongues in this age, the church age, and in this time. Um, do we believe? Uh, now, uh, typically speaking, when you talk about, um, uh, the, as it were, categories of um, churches, um, in, in simplicity... Okay, go through your animation. Yep, come on. Thank you. In simplicity, what we all love to do in the church is put everything into a this box or that box, right? Um, Are you... Arminian or are you Calvinist? Are you a cessationalist or are you a charismatic? Right? And, of course, your pastor has this way of teaching as it relates to these issues of extremes where he says if you're looking for where God stands on these extreme issues where there are good, godly people on both sides, generally start looking right in that area right about there because this is more or less going to be a pendulum that's going to be swinging back and forth. And so, as it relates to this issue, um, now, if, if, if we were to ca- categorize ourselves as a church in one of these area, uh, ways, we would fall into the category of cessation. The idea that God is not using certain gifts in the church today. Prophecy, we think he is using not in the foretelling way, but in the foretelling way, as Paul defines it in 1 Corinthians 14. However, miracles healings and tongues no i don't believe that god is using them in the in, in in the american or we'd say the western world church today and the reason why is because of what we look at in the scriptures as to what tongues was intended to be for let me just run down quick let me give you the quick rundown of uh, of of what what that is um, in um, acts chapter 2 uh, we, we have the Holy Spirit fall upon the men and women of the 70 in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. Uh, the, the scriptures say, um, so let's just, uh, okay, so when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were without one accord in one place. There came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. It filled the house where they were sitting. There appeared unto them cloven tongues like as fire. It sat upon each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began speaking with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Uh, and there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this, and that's because there were people from every nation who were Jews coming for Pentecost, the feast. Now, when that, which is one of three feasts of the year where Jewish men were required to come to the temple for worship. Now, when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because every man heard them speak in his own language. So you see this idea here that every man, that, that, that they're speaking something and then every man who's listening hears them speak in their own language. This is the first manifestation. But I don't know that that's the only thing that was happening on that day. And the reason why, let's keep reading. They were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Behold, are, are these not 
uh, are, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Ferga, Pamphylia, Egypt, all the parts of Libya, about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. So everyone's hearing the, 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 um, the, the 70 from the upper room are, say, are speaking something and everyone is hearing in their own language. So it would be as if I'm speaking and multiple people who speak multiple languages and maybe they all actually understand. So everyone here understands English but maybe one was born in France, one was born in Italy, one was born in Mexico. And as I'm speaking, they're hearing it in their native tongue, even though they all you know, speak, in this case, Hebrew. So they were amazed, and they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, what mean is this? Now, this is the interesting thing. Others, mocking, said, these men are full of new wine. Now, that's kind of an interesting, why would they think that they were drunken? And that's where possibly... What was happening is they were speaking in something that we would call an ecstatic tongue. In other words, it's not an actual language that anyone would understand if they're just hearing the sounds. But then they, un- but then they understood it in their own language. So I don't exactly know how that would play out. But if we may say it this way, it's possible that they were speaking in an ecstatic tongue and that... The Spirit of God was interpreting it to each person in their native tongue? It's interesting way of uh, theorizing, perhaps. I had never thought that way. When I, had, my, when I read through it, it was that, say, you had 50 people, each one speaking in a language. The majority of what you hear sounds gibberish, but you do hear the one in your language. That's the way. Set, explain that again. Uh-huh. Each speaking a different language, but a language. I hear my language being spoken in English, and I also hear the, this French, German, Spanish, Portuguese. It's all understandable, but it's not that each one is speaking in an unknown tongue. It's a known tongue to some. But each one is speaking in a different tongue. Correct. What? each one speaking in the same tongue. What would compel people to think that they were drunk? and babbling then. If you're not paying attention and you just hear the hum of a crowd, and it's a very gibberish crowd, if you get 10 people talking happy in English, it can sound pretty gibberish. But if you mix that up with 10 different languages amongst the people, if you're not interested and you just hear the chatter, you say, they had the wrong kind of tea. Reasonable explanation? Possible. Um, so, yeah, uh, we don't know, right? Um, but one way or another, what, what we find here is that people are saying these, these people are drunk. We don't exactly know why they would think that. But we also know that the, the, the formal manifestation of this was that everyone was hearing in their own language what was being said, the wonderful works of God. And people didn't know what was going on. So Peter stands up. He says, we're not drunken. Um, this, and th- this, is what, this is the point. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last day, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my 
servants and on my handmaidens. I will pour out in those days of my spirit and they shall prophesy. And so that would be the idea. And then he talks about wonders on heaven and above. And, and that's not until Revelation chapter 6. So that hasn't happened yet. But um, so they are prophesying. So they're speaking the wonderful works of God. And in this case, because everyone is hearing it and, and thus, however it's happening, it's being interpreted to them. And this is, if we correspond that to 1 Corinthians 14, in that case, they are speaking something and there is no interpretation happening. But in this case, an interpretation is happening or a hearing of it in the, in, in the clarity is happening. And so there is edification, but this is that prophecy and this is that promise. So take note of the fact then that speaking in tongues was a fulfillment of a prophecy in the book of Joel written to Jews of a sign of the last days. And this corresponds to what Paul said, the Jews seek a sign and the Gentiles seek knowledge. So when Paul came to Corinth, one of the things he was determined not to do is to use his knowledge, right? He, he determined Gentiles were so interested in knowledge, and believe me, Paul had it. You look at his preaching on Mars Hill, he was quoting secular poets in, in his sermon on Mars Hill. The guy knew Plato, he knew Aristotle, he knew his stuff. But he did not bring that in because he did not want to appeal to that thing that was so appealing to them. He wanted instead to appeal to, to present the gospel in simplicity and call those out of Corinth who were willing to listen in simplicity to receive. So, the first thing that we see about tongues is it was a manifestation of the prophecy of Joel to be a sign of the end times to, uh, as, as it related to Joel's writing to Jewish believers about what the end times or when the last days would begin. Right? Now we go back to 1 Corinthians 14. In, in the next verses here, in the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, saith the Lord. So then as he's talking about this idea of speaking in tongues, he quotes... It is Isaiah. He quotes Isaiah 28. He says here, whom shall, uh, whom shall he teach knowledge and whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast for precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people. This people Who's this people? Well, we don't have a whole lot of context here, but I can tell you this. The this people here is Israel. That's who Isaiah is prophesying to. So Paul says, what prophecy tells us tongues is supposed to do is that with men of other tongues and of other lips, he will speak unto this people. He says, yet they will not hear me. Wherefore, this is Paul's conclusion, tongues are for a sign 
not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying service not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. So tongues are intended for a specific purpose in the scriptures as a sign to unbelievers. Now, Paul already talked about this idea of if there's no interpreter, then you'll be seen as a barbarian. And he goes on to say that. Um, if, if the whole church become together into one place and all speak with tongues and there come in those that are unlearned and unbelievers, will they not say that they're mad? If an unbeliever walks into a church where we're all speaking in tongues, they're just going to come in and say these people are crazy. They're going to walk away. They won't have heard the gospel. They won't have heard anything of edification. They'll just say these people are crazy because they won't understand. However, how does that comport with the idea of tongues being assigned for them that believe not? If Paul says in the next verse, we're, we're all speaking in tongues and one comes in who's unlearned or an unbeliever, they'll say we're mad. So instead prophesy and then the unlearned or the unbeliever comes in and he is convinced of all because the Spirit of God is able to convict his heart with the things he's hearing. Okay, well, this is where we take what we saw in Acts chapter 2 and we combine it with this. And, and what Paul quotes here from Isaiah 28. Tongues are for a sign to unbelievers, but which unbelievers are willing to receive signs? The Jews. The Jews have always sought for signs. So, we believe that tongues was primarily intended as a sign gift toward unbelieving Jews as a way to validate to the unbelieving Jew that what was happening in the Christian church was actually the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2 and because it was a fulfillment of Joel chapter 2 this thing must be of God. Now, if that's the case that the primary functional purpose of tongues was to convince unbelieving Jews that the church was of God well, after the early church, that, that functional use is not as meaningful anymore. And the reason why is because as society has gone on, the church, the canon was finished, scripture is finished, and it becomes very apparent now through the testimony of the church where God is doing his work today. As a matter of fact, the Jews kind of dissolved for a good 2,000 years, right? They scattered among the people. They, they had their little communities. Um, but at, at in 70 AD, the temple is destroyed. Israel ceases to function as a nation. And until 1948, they're just pockets of people in Spain, in Russia, wherever they don't get run out or, 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 or killed. In Spain until the Inquisitions, and then they were, they were, they were out of there for, for good. And, and um, uh, Russia's always been a place where there's been able to be a good pocket of Jews. They haven't run them out of there. They've basically, basically been run out of everywhere where they've been. And so when we say, do tongues still exist today? Well, as a general rule, I believe doctrinally, the primary functional purpose of tongues is no longer... In use. Which is why I don't believe that as, as we see... This bothers me. If tongues and healing and miracles are valid gifts, 
for, for, for the, the, this age today. What we call the sign gifts. Why is it not, I mean, in a church like this, we've got all these kids getting saved. You'd think that at some point, one of us would have to start leaving our kid at home because he's spontaneously manifesting one of these gifts that we don't allow. All of a sudden, Benjamin starts speaking in tongues, and I've got to figure out what to do with this kid because he's babbling all over the place, and, I don't, and we don't believe in that. But that doesn't happen. And you say, well, is it just because of a lack of faith? Well, I think that there's plenty of people in this room who, at least when they've been considering this issue, have said, you know what, Lord, I'm open. I'm open to this. Would you, would, you, would you give me some clarity here? And yet, it doesn't bear any fruit. Why? Is it just because we're not seeking it? Is it just because we, we, we've, we've so shut ourselves off from that avenue of faith? Or is it because that's not the way God's working in the Western world today, in the church today? Because we don't need to be a... We don't need to be a church of signs and wonders because the functional church of signs and wonders was there for the Jews to prove something to them in the way that they knew, which was signs and wonders. That's the way their prophets had always shown themselves. The church now operates under a different rule, which is prophesy and let the Spirit of God do His work. That's how the Great Awakenings happened. That was George Whitfield. That was Jonathan Edwards. That was the great revivals. The great revivals did not happen through signs and wonders. They happened through a man of God speaking the word of God and the spirit of God moving. So that would put us in the cessationalist camp. But does that mean that God cannot use signs and wonders today? No. No. No, God is not limited, nor does the Bible say, unless we interpret 1 Corinthians 13, um, tongues shall cease, knowledge shall vanish away. Unless we interpret that to mean tongues have ceased, which many people in our circles will do. I don't. That's not what he's saying there. I don't believe. Contextually. But, What we do believe is that that's not the primary functional way that God is going to reach people today. Does that mean, however, that God could not, as you, as you described, bring about a situation where someone comes in, starts speaking in a language, and God miraculously gives someone the capacity to understand it or to speak back? God could certainly do that. Does that mean that if somebody is in Papua New Guinea... And he's going to a tribe of people who have never spoken before. That he cannot, all of a sudden, spontaneously, he starts speaking and they start understanding him. No, God could certainly do that. And I don't know what to make of books like Lords of the Earth and whatever else and all of the miracles and things that, that, that are described in them. Uh, men who would stand up toe-to-toe with a witch doctor and as the witch doctor would do his miracles, he'd say, well, let's see how this goes. And he'd do the same thing the witch doctor did walk on hot coals and the feet aren't burned? Is that something I can speak to by experience? No, but are we going to limit our God to say he could not do such a thing? I think that would be foolish for us to limit God in that way. 
Now, does that mean that because he was able to stand toe-to-toe with the witch doctor and walk on those coals without getting burned, he could come here, throw a bunch of hot coals in the middle of Legacy Baptist Church, start walking on them and not have his feet burned? Well, no, because that's not going to convince anyone here of anything spiritual. There's no battle between good and evil here between a witch doctor that's going to show that, that the God of the Bible is greater than the God of the witch doctor. All that is, is that, that, that's just going to be on the nightly news and people are going to um, gossip about it and it's just going to become, it's just going to become a spectacle. God doesn't work in spectacle. That's not how God operates. Right? So God's not going to bring spectacle into the church in that way. Um, and God's certainly not going to bring the exact thing that Paul was rebuking them for in 1 Corinthians 14 into the church and 12, which was dividing along the lines of spiritual gifts. So that in a church where they say you can't become a member until you manifest the Spirit through ecstatic tongues. Until you start to manifest this and then you can become a member. Or, 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 and then you're saved. The second blessing. The Spirit falling on you. Okay, so now there's a perverse incentive. That's what we call it, right? A perverse incentive. The idea that now we've incentivized people to manifest the, the, the gift. And we have perverse incentives. Any church can have perverse incentives, right? Um, we, we need to be careful with, with the, the danger of perverse incentives as it relates to dress, right? That people don't come and they see pastor in his suit and, and, and the ladies in their skirts. And all of a sudden they say, in order to be accepted, I am going to start dressing the way they dress. Well, if, you know, if... if, if there's a reason, you know, dressing up is not, never, not necessarily a bad thing, but it can become a perverse incentive. I need to be like them or I need to be accepted among them. Therefore, I'm going to do the thing they do. That's not why we dress up. That's not why ladies wear the skirts. That's not why I wear a tie. And so we, want, we need to avoid perverse incentives. And sign gifts are primarily a perverse incentive in our culture, right? So we see that. So if, if, if and, and I'll, I'll make, make it open to comment here in just a sec again. But so I'd say we, we, we're probably right about there, maybe a little farther over, where we'd say primarily in the Western world, I'm not going to expect to see sign gifts. But does that necessarily mean that I will not ever, ex- that, 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 that I would never see a healing a miracle of that sort, that I would never see those things. Not necessarily. Andrew, did you have something? Right. Yeah, and that, that is what Christ taught, right? Christ did not teach, they will know you by your signs. They will know you by your love, one for another. And that is what Christ taught. The signs were, had a different functional reason than to be the forward-facing way that the church proves itself. That was never the point of the sign gifts. Annie. 
Yeah. Yeah, and, and um, so in answer to your first question, you know, the Bible says that the Spirit of God intercedes for us with groanings that cannot be uttered, even when we don't know what to say. And so the idea of that sort of an idea where, I mean, uh, nothing can come out, you don't know what to say, it, I think is entirely valid. And in response to your, your, your second, uh, your, your, your account there, you know, I don't doubt that. And, and one of the primary reasons why I don't doubt that is because I've had a similar experience. My, my father had a, um, a terrible back issue. A couple of his discs were out of place, and they were t- saying surgery and all of this stuff, and it was just going to be this huge ordeal. And I spent a great deal of time. I was down in Florida, but I was just on my knees asking for, for God to heal him. And then my, my mother and, and sisters went off to church one night, and my dad stayed home because his back was in terrible shape that day. And he just went into to excruciating pain, and he fell on the floor because he was trying to get to the phone to call someone and he couldn't get up, he couldn't call someone and he ended up just falling asleep. And when he woke up, the pain was gone and it's never been back since. Uh, those discs, which were way out of place, were all just put back into place. Um, and I, 
I, I, there's no explanation for such things. The doctors can't explain such things except the power of prayer, right? So, so the, these sorts of anecdotal ideas of the Lord doing these miraculous healings. And, you know, we talk about the idea of the gift of healings. What does that mean? Uh, does it have to be, you know, you, you said you put your hands on Wesley. Of course, I was down in Florida. My dad was in Colorado. I wasn't laying hands on anyone. Um, how much would that matter? Um, is that the gift of healing? Uh, what happened there, can't say. But we, and this is where we say, God is not limited, right? Um, God is certainly not limited. Uh, we've never invoked James 5, 16. Uh, uh, 5, 14, 15, 16. That if someone is sick among us, the elders of the church come and anoint him with oil and lay their hands on them. Uh, confess your fault one to another, pray one for another, and ye shall be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We've never used that in the church. I've, I, it was used in a church when I was growing up um, to uh, ambiguous effect, I'd say. Um, but we have that in our Bibles, do we not? Is any man sick among you? Let him call the elders of the church. They will anoint his head with oil. The elders will lay their hands on him. They will pray for him. He will confess his faults one to, to another. They will pray for him and he will be healed. And so we do see these things prescribed in the church, these gifts, entirely possible, entirely possible, but they are not going to be the forward face of the church. We know that for sure. That is not going to be the thing that we're going to get up and we're going to do some sort of spectacle for unbelievers with speaking in tongues or with healings or whatever it might be, like the televangelist type things, you know, a bunch of people in the crowd and having people come down and smacking them on the head and they're healed and all that stuff. That's never going to happen. It cannot be that way. That is not how God worked. That is not how Jesus taught. Uh, great, great point there, Andrea. That's not how Jesus taught the world will know his people. The world will know his people by the love that they have one for another. And these other things that might happen from time to time in, in, in our settings might happen more on the mission field where there need to be manifestations of God's power. Um, they're, 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 where a sign or a wonder could do that great work. But we wouldn't expect it to be the, the norm. Uh, and that, that's why. So, um, yeah, we are not going to put God in a box and limit him. But we are, I am very confident in saying that the sign gifts had a functional purpose that is no longer, that is no longer the prime, um, no longer necessary as the as a primary function in the church, and that's why I believe the sign gifts have have not been forward facing, except generally among that wing of Christianity that is less doctrinally sound. Um, I remember one time I was talking with a man, and he was lamenting um, that. Because he, he had a soft spot for the charismatic movement, and he, he was lamenting how the charismatic movement um, was. Uh, he he kind of said, you know, kind of fundamentalism or, or, or uh, conservative evangelicalism, they kind of have truth, but they shy away from the spirit, and the charismatics have the spirit, but shy away from the truth. And, um, and that was kind of the general idea there, but um, it's, it, and it is a little bit that way. Uh, naturally, our wing does have a problem with the spirit. Uh, our, our, our church doesn't, but our wing of Christianity tends to. But 
the way that the charismatic movement does what they do, they will by default have a very loose relationship with truth because it does not manifest truth. And we need to remember that. And actually, conversely, our wing, which elevates truth, we would expect there to be a harder time or a looser connection to the spirit because we are going to be drawn toward the idea of truth and with truth comes checklists, right? And when you have checklists, you don't need the spirit anymore because you're just gauging everything not on the spirit, not on the spiritual. You're gauging everything on the factual, right? And so we're, we, each, each wing is going to have our struggles with this um, and for those reasons. But all of that to say that... Uh, yeah, we want to look in that general middle, but we would put ourselves, because of the doctrinal things that I said tonight, uh, we put ourselves more towards cessationalist with the caveat that God is bigger than us and can do whatever he pleases. Okay, we've well got, to, I mean, we're, we're well past our time, so we'll have to stop there. Um, and uh, we will continue, and next week we'll finish up our, our general review of 1 Corinthians 14, and then I'll put the dots, I'll connect the dots. Not next week, I'll be not teaching next week. But um, we'll connect the dots with um, what, how is it that there's this entire chapter on speaking in tongues, and then all of a sudden Paul transitions to, oh, by the way, women aren't allowed to talk. Or is there a connection between the word speak in verses 1 through 33 and the word speak in verses 34 and 35. You can mull over that one for two weeks.